The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Let's continue to worship our Lord, and now by hearing His voice through His Word, and we're going to go ahead and start in James chapter 2. For those of you who haven't been with us on a regular basis, if you're visiting or missed because of vacation, we are going through the book of James. Uh, a section at a time, thought by thought, paragraph by paragraph. Uh, today we're looking at James chapter 2, verses 5 through 13. So last week we actually did the first four verses of chapter 2. And just so you know, when James wrote this, uh, verses 1 through 13, they actually all go together. It's one theme, but there was just too much information. We couldn't uh, possibly explain it all in one time together, so try to break it up into two. Even verses just, we're attempting to look at verses 5 through 13, and even that's a lot of information. Um, but we're, it, it almost has to be kept together because it's one argument, it's one theme. So we're going to be looking at James 2, 1 through 13. Follow along as I read uh, those verses, and then we'll talk about it. My brethren, James says, talking to fellow believers, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism or partiality. For if a man comes into your assembly or congregation with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty or shabby clothes, but you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and you say to him, you sit here in a good place. And then you say to the poor man, you stand over there. Or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, do not, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, then you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point of the law, he's become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you've become a transgressor of the whole law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. As I said, that's a, a lot of stuff. Uh, we looked at verses 1 through 4 last week. And this is coming off the heels of chapter 1 where James just told these people. By the way, he, he probably knew many of these people personally. They are now believing Jews scattered abroad outside of the area of Jerusalem and Palestine. And they've either been chased out of town because they were being persecuted. Or because of the famine that hit, they had to leave town to other places to try to find a source of living and survival. So they are just scattered abroad all over the place. But they are believers. And they are Jewish Christians. And more than likely, they were people who used to sit under James's teaching as the pastor and the shepherd of the Jerusalem church. So he, he knows these folks. So he has ongoing input and reports about how they're doing, what's going on in those other local churches where they are spread abroad. And uh, he has things on his heart as a pastor that he needs to share with them. And so he, uh, he's been sharing those things. In the first chapter was calling them to rejoice in the midst of trials, reminding them that's the Christian life. That's your lot as a believer. You've got trials and temptation. We all do. And we've got to just trust it all in God's hands. And he'll get us through it. And then he goes on at the end talking about reminding them of their priorities in their faith, what true religion was. True religion was uh, being a doer of the word and not just a hearer only. So that's the end of chapter 1. And then he gave an example of pure and undefiled religion that pleases God. And that's giving special attention to orphans and widows in their distress. Because God, God had a special heart and compassion for true widows and for true orphans who were in distress. And every Christian needs to have the heart of Jesus Christ, which is a heart of compassion. And it needs to be uh, shown through manifestation by meeting the needs of people like uh, orphans and widows and also the poor. And that's where he picks up chapter 2. So this is connected to chapter 1. God also has a special heart for poor people. And I mean 
really poor people, legitimately poor people. Uh, we're a little confused here when we read this today, 2,000 years later, here in a very rich America, because we really don't have a high population of poor people in, here in America. So our view can be tainted of what poor is. Maybe many of you filled out a 2010 census, and the results came back for that, by the way, and they've been published. And apparently there's a poor population here in America, and the poor population averages an income of like $30,000 a year. And they have two TVs and a car and a VCR and a computer or two and very expensive Nike tennis shoes, and on and on it goes, according to the 2010 census. Uh, by the standards of the rest of the world, that isn't poor. We are rich. There are poor people here in America, but... Uh, just keep in mind, there's a very significant cultural, realistic, historical difference of what we understand to be poor and what James is talking about. He's talking about real poor people, this, the kind of poverty that exists even today in other countries of the world. And many of you, no doubt, have been able to visit those kind of very poor countries. That's what he's talking about, real poverty. And so he's addressing that. And so uh, there was a problem in, this, in the churches. He got word back that uh, there, apparently there's a rampant problem among Christians, these Jewish believers, that in their congregations they were showing partiality. And one dominant way of showing partiality or favoritism or prejudice was that they were giving favor to the richer people in their congregation and looking down their nose at the poorer people in their congregations that were visiting. And James is just aghast at that and he can't believe it. You've got to be kidding me. I can't believe this is going on. So as a pastor whose job it is to be an encourager and a teacher and a comforter and one who prays for his sheep and helps and nurtures and grabs by the hand when they're falling, also his responsibility as a pastor and elder, according to Timothy, is to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. So there's encouragement throughout this letter. There is also reproving going on, legitimately so, from a shepherd and a pastor who loves his people and reproving them and correcting them when needed, when they, he, when they need to hear uh, certain rebukes. And actually, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, is one long rebuke from the pastor. But it's a legitimate one. And it's fitting for all of us. How do we apply this to our life? We need to take this rebuke and assess our own heart, our own mind, our own lifestyle, how we treat people. Are we partial? Do we show favoritism? Are we into holy cliques and holy huddles? Or do we have the same... Love of Christ towards all people. That's really the big theme of what he's getting at here. So let's go ahead and look at it. And I broke up verses 5 through 13, just three principles to kind of hang our thoughts on about what's going on here. And I, the, I put the title there, Mercy, Not Partiality. That's really the big theme. That's what James is trying to get across. Okay, Christian who knows Jesus Christ, the beloved, blessed Savior who came in this world to save sinners. That was his purpose statement. Or John, 3, 6, or John chapter 3 that said, He didn't come into the world to judge the world because it was already condemned, He came to save it, to save sinners. That's the heart of Jesus, who had a heart of unbelievable compassion, mercy, grace, patience, love, forgiveness to be offered to sinful people, and Christians need to have the same heart. And so they just needed a, a reminder, and so they get an appropriate one that is inspired by God. So let's go ahead and look at it and see if we can benefit. Again, like I said, just three principles that I summarized here. Let's look at the first one, verses 5 and 6. First, the biblical reality that he reminds them of. He's trying to address and change their thinking because if they could change their thinking, then that will affect their actions. Our actions always flow from our thinking. So he's dealing with the biblical reality that he reminds them, and that is that God has chosen the ragged over the rich in this world. God has chosen the ragged. That's literally the word uh, at the end of verse 2. If a man, a poor man comes in in ragged clothes, uh, the Greek word, very specific. Dirty, filthy, smelly, ragged. Tells you everything you need to know about that guy. He's poor. And the biblical reality that they needed to hear is they're showing partiality to richer, upscale, uppity people. The who's who of the social network. He says, wow, Christians, God has chosen the ragged over the rich. Look at verse 5. Now, it's kind of interesting. At the end of verse 4, actually, beginning of verse 1 in chapter 2, my brethren, my brothers. That's kind of an affectionate term. And then at the end, so he's talking to those who used to be in his congregation, their fellow believers. And at the end of verse 4, look what he calls them, evil. My brothers, you are evil. Boy, if pastors did that today, you'd probably have a lot of people leaving that church. Because that hurts people's feelings. 
Oh, brothers. Oh, you're evil. And then in verse five, transition. But listen, my beloved, my beloved brethren, the word beloved there, that's the word for supernatural love of God, agape, my beloved brethren. So he's got he loves these people. They're believers. They're his sheep. My beloved brethren, just right after calling them evil. That just jumped out at me. How necessity and needed. I mean, what a necessity and what a need this is in our Christian lives. Where there's somebody who cares about us enough, who knows us well enough, well enough that they're going to hold us accountable in our life as a sinner who is saved. We all need accountability. So that'd be my question for you, and I thought about it in my own life. Every, every Christian needs to answer the question Do you have somebody in your life that's close enough to you that pretty much knows everything about you, who loves you in Christ? They are truly your beloved, and at the same time, when it's appropriate, they can point their finger in your face and say, That is evil. That is sinful. Knock it off. Every, every Christian needs that to be refined. That's part of the sanctification process. If you've got friends, if you've got a spouse, if you've got family members, other believers in your life who can do that in your life, you need to thank God. God, thank you for the gift of that person and that friendship. And here's a pastor who cares for his people. He absolutely loves them. And at the same time, he has enough courage to say, you know what, you're doing this, this is wrong, this is evil, stop it, repent. If your brother sins, Jesus said in Luke 17:3, if your brother sins, rebuke him or her. And that usually hurts our feelings, doesn't it? It usually doesn't come across as a warm fuzzy. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Isn't that beautiful? That's what Jesus requires. Total forgiveness if they truly repent. And that's how we grow as Christians. So uh, I didn't want to skip by that beautiful little phrase and reminder of how practical that is. We need people in our life to point the finger and say, that's evil. But point number one, his main issue there is that uh, beginning verse listen to my beloved brethren did not god choose? here you guys are showing partiality and favoritism to rich visitors coming into your church people you don't even know jewish rich people and you're catering to them you're giving them the best seats you're giving them the nice gold-plated bulletins and then you got these poor ragged ugly smelly people you don't give them any concern no regard whatsoever and as a matter of fact here go sit in the lobby i'll, I'll just and then you give full attention here. This was totally inappropriate in a Christian church, totally hypocritical, and he addresses it. And he is aghast. He just can't believe that they're doing this because they've forgotten some basic principles. Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world? Did not God choose the poor of this world? What did He choose them for? He chose them to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him. Wow! I don't know about you, but you know, the first time I read that statement in a while, I just kind of shook my head. I was like, wow, is that, does that really mean what it says? Is this talking about election and salvation? Is it saying that uh, God just elects and saves only poor people? Or another way it could be interpreted is, uh, is being poor and exercising and taking a vow of poverty a way to earn salvation? Well, it, neither of those are true. That's not what he's saying. He's just making generic, categorical Practical, obvious observations based on hindsight, based on history, based on how people have responded to God. And Jesus Himself said in Matthew 19, it is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven except by the miracle of God's intervention. Because all throughout 6,000 years of history, the pattern is, and it's obvious, is that Poor people, needy people, dependent people are the ones who need a Savior and they recognize it. They're not self-sufficient and they cry out to their Creator, God help me, God save me. That's just a no-brainer. He's speaking in broad sweeping general terms. He's not referring and he doesn't even care about the exception to that right now. So he's not saying that rich people are never saved because there are some rich people who did get saved by God's grace. But that's not his point. He's speaking in general terms. And by the way, these Jews back then 2,000 years ago were poor... They were chased out of town. They were persecuted by the rich Sadducees. Jesus Himself was a poor person who had no place to lay His head. He was chased out of town time and time again by the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the rich people in society and the rich people in the religious community. So the believers, for the most part, and their lot, were poor in terms of the materialism of this world. And it's, it's practical and it is true today. If you look around and say, who runs the world? Who influences our world today? The media, the television, the movers, the shakers, the people that are popular, the politicians, those who rule countries. It is the poor that rule and dictate and influence pretty much everything in this world from a world's point of view. And believers and Christians, for the most part, tend not to be the rich among the rich. 
I do want you to look at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, where Paul reminded us of this, uh, of this great truth, or this humbling reminder, actually, is what it is. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, <clears throat> he's talking to these Corinthians who were saved out of this pagan culture. And they weren't the rich and the elite that got saved out of the pagan culture of Corinth. They were the masses. They were among the poor people. They were among the insignificant ones. They came to realize their need for a Savior. They cried out to God and they got saved by God's grace, by belief in the Gospel. That's how they got saved. They didn't get saved by works. But here's the reality. And this is, like, this is my biography, by the way. I could write my name in here. For consider your calling, brethren. For consider your calling, McManus. Consi- McManus, look back and see what God, where you were at when God saved you 25 years ago and what kind of person you were. You were pathetic. You were a loser. I could say that literally. And look at the adjectives he uses. For consider your calling, brethren, <laughs> when you got saved by Jesus, that there were not many of you Christians who were wise according to the flesh. The wise PhDs of the world, for the most part, are dominated and the intelligentsia is dominated by unbelievers and the well-to-dos, for the most part, generally speaking. Or that which is perceived to be wise, all those smart people. As a matter of fact, the world thinks Christians are stupid, idiots, foolish. So not many Christians, truly, if you look at the masses of uh, throughout church history and the church universal, there aren't many really that are that wise compared to what the world says wisdom is. There aren't many mighty either. Not many influential people. Every once in a while there will be some mighty influential person in our culture that gets saved and will think, oh, finally, good. Maybe that person can make a difference in the world for Jesus. If some famous movie star got saved, boy, that'll do it. Or some famous athlete, that'll do it. That'll save the world. No, it won't actually. If that person's really a Christian, they'll just be despised by the world. So not many Christians are wise, not many are mighty, not many are noble from royal birth, uh, verse 27. But uh, rather, contrast, God has chosen the foolish things of the world. Well, thank you, Paul, for calling me a fool. The foolish things of the world to shame the wise, unsaved people of the world. And God has chosen the weak things of the world. Christian, you are weak. I am weak for the most part. We are weak people and that's why we got saved. We needed a Savior the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world. That's you, Christian. You're a weak, base thing. Or you were. Despised. You were, you were despised by the world. You had nothing to offer. God has chosen and saved you. The things that are not, verse 28, that He might nullify the things that are. So, that's a, a biography of, for the most part, the church. Not mighty, not powerful, not noble, not influential, not rich and James is just recognizing that basic reality and saying, wow, this is true about Christianity. You should, you're poor. You were persecuted by the rich people. You were chased out of town by the rich people. You were one of the poor people on the run and needing uh, stuff from the church. And here, when a rich person and a poor person come into your own congregation, you show partiality to the rich person. How ironic is that? How wrong is that? Wow, you've forgotten your history. Forgot your lineage. So that's all he's pointing out. So you go back to James 2. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? And many times, you know, Christians aren't well-to-do and don't have a whole lot of material goods because of their lifestyle and their choices and their convictions. Because did you know that some people get rich illegitimately by stealing, lying, being unethical, uh, dog-eat-dog, just running over people? They do. And even the Christian ethic sometimes prevents us from amassing more wealth unto ourselves. And even the lifestyle of a Christian, that we don't just make money to keep and stack up and hoard. Ephesians 4 is clear. We make money part of, in part to share with others. That's what it says. That's the Christian ethic. To give it away. They do say that C.S. Lewis, especially at the end of his life, he did, started making some money from some of his writings. And he gave away more money. I mean, he couldn't give away enough money. He gave away a third, maybe more of his income. On a regular basis. He, he was a generous man. So they tell us. And that should be true of the Christian ethic for any believer. So uh, he's just asking these questions uh, that are rhetorical and they're self-evident in their answers, trying to remind them and shake them up and saying, wow, don't you remember where you are? Where you came from? Listen, my beloved brethren, it's God chose the poor of this world to be rich in faith. By the way, if you are a Christian 
and you don't have a whole lot of material goods, you don't need to be jealous of the rich and the wealthy and the influential of this world because their finances, it won't last. It won't get them into heaven. As a matter of fact, you are richer than they are if you're a Christian who is either moderately living or poorly living or you just have enough because every Christian is rich in Jesus Christ. Right now in this life, we are rich with true spiritual wealth that matters and counts and it's in the spiritual realm. Total forgiveness of sin. Secure in the family of God. Guaranteed to go into heaven and be with Christ for all eternity. How glorious is that? The gift of prayer. Isn't that a a rich that God has bestowed upon us? Ongoing forgiveness of sin. Amazing Christian friends that you can have an intimate, deep relationship with. I could go on and on. The Bible, the Word of God. Isn't that the, the riches of the Word of God? Wow. So indeed, we are the rich ones of the world. We are rich in faith. So even here and now, we are rich, spiritually speaking, in the middle of verse 5. Christians are also rich in another way, and that is that they are heirs. So you're rich in this life, but heirs speaks of wealth you're going to inherit in the future when you die. Heirs of the kingdom. That's future riches you're going to have and that I will have. And those we talked about those in Revelation. You're going to be a part of the kingdom. You're going to be reigning with Christ. You're going to have... You won't be poor. There won't be a poor person in heaven. Because... We will all jointly own everything with Jesus Christ and the God of the universe. How wealthy is that? Wow. So that's a great promise. So you've got to get the right perspective. And then he goes on and asks another question. um, Verse 6. So here God's chosen the poor. He has uh, compassion for the poor. You don't. Oh, by the way, another comment about the poor. God's heart for the poor. In the Old Testament, God actually gave laws to Moses in the covenant community of Israel that were that safeguarded and helped the poor. God made laws to protect the poor. God did not make any laws to protect the rich. Now, the rich were protected under all the general laws that applied to everybody. But there were special laws given by God to protect the poor because God has a heart for the poor. If you oppress the poor, you approach your maker, says the Proverbs. But some of those laws in the Old Testament that were given specifically to protect the poor, they're kind of interesting. If there was a poor person and he borrowed money, you can't charge him interest. You can't charge a fellow believer who is poor interest. God said so. Uh, another one, they had to give ongoing sacrifices and God accommodated Himself to poor people because if they couldn't afford a bull or a goat that were very expensive, they could go ahead and get a turtle dove or a pigeon. You know, pigeons are worthless, Right? So they could use a pigeon and offer that because God was accommodating the poor and meeting their needs. Also God accommodated the poor by every seven years was like a jubilee year or a Sabbath year. And every seven years, all debt was forgiven. Man, wouldn't that be cool? All your credit cards. Boom! After seven years. Every 50 years, any person in the Jewish community that was a believer, that was a slave, every 50 years was freed. And he had the option to continue on working for his master or to be a free man. So these were all examples of God accommodating to the poor in society. By the way, this is not welfare. This was not socialism. This was not communism. This was a theocracy ordained by God. And the people still had responsibility before God. So again, it's just a very practical way that God has a special, to show that God has a special heart for poor people, so must Christians. So that's why he says in verse 6, because this is going on, you have dishonored the poor. Your, your churches have dishonored the poor. And he's saying this generically. He's talking to churches. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? So, you know, he's making two points here. You oppress the poor, yet they're one of you, and you favor the rich, and they're the ones that persecuted you, they chased you out of town. Uh, As a matter of fact, they are the ones, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, especially the Sadducees, they were rich, they were wealthy, they they were the aristocrats, they were the ones who persecuted Jesus, mocked Him, conjured up this mock fake trial, false accusations, had Him executed and killed. Matthew 16 is clear. The Sadducees did that. The rich, the wealthy, mocking, blaspheming the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the end of verse 7. Do they not blaspheme the fair name, the excellent name, the blessed name, the honorable name, the highest name by which you have been saved, Jesus Christ? Wow, you're accommodating potential blasphemers in your church. Rejecting those that God has a heart for. Man, I don't get it. That is hypocrisy. This has no place in the church. 
Well, Pastor, you're getting kind of excited. Well, James was. The terminology he's using, this is just a full-on frontal rebuke. Can't candy coat it. He probably would have raised his voice if he wasn't writing, if he was speaking. So I think they got the message, or hopefully they did. So that's the biblical reality. God has chosen the ragged over the rich. Point number two is that the biblical... Well, what's the biblical requirement in light of this? How can we avoid showing partiality, favoritism, cliques, prejudice in our churches and in our lives? Well, believers must show love, not legalism. It's the bottom line. Now, the believers that were showing partiality, more than likely, it was they weren't aware of it. They weren't paying attention. They weren't sensitive to it. It needed to be pointed out. And when it's pointed out, they probably, some of them didn't believe they were doing it anyway. Probably their attitude was because they were Jewish believers. They were in tune with the law. They were sensitive to the law. And before they got saved, they were fastidious about obeying all the laws. So they were very law conscious. And so, no doubt, some of them in their mind are thinking, well, partiality, that's not one of the Ten Commandments. It's not a biggie. Partiality? That's kind of subjective and open to interpretation. So some of them thought dismissed or marginalized the sin of partiality. And no doubt they would have argued with James and said, well, psh, I, at least I don't murder. At least I don't commit adultery. Have you, I don't know, if you, have you ever talked to an unbeliever who does that? You give them the gospel and you ask them, well, are you, are you a sinner? Or you say, Scripture says everybody's a sinner. And they say, I'm not a sinner. Well, yeah, you are. You're a sinner. Well, no, I'm not. No, yeah, you are a sinner. No, no, I'm not. And the first thing they usually say is, well, I haven't killed anybody. Because they don't understand God as the lawgiver. And there are big laws and little laws, and every single law that's broken is an offense to the lawgiver, the holy lawgiver. And that's what these people did not understand, and that's why James is going to rebuke them with the law and a theology about the law. Well, you guys don't get it. Minimizing, marginalizing the sin of partiality and just saying, well, we're okay because we haven't committed adultery and we haven't murdered. You know what? That's what the Pharisees would say. Jesus rebuked them for that and said they didn't attend to other parts of the law. Partiality was part of the law. Partiality was a sin. And God's biblical requirement was that the believers, instead of showing uh, partiality, they needed to show love. And actually, the law that they violated by being partial, they violated the greatest law in the Old Testament. And that was the law of love. Let's look at Leviticus chapter 19. You know, I think Leviticus gets a bad rap in the Christian community. A lot of Christians, they make fun of the book of Leviticus. About how boring it is, or there's nothing practical there. It's like, that, that's actually very untrue, because when Jesus was given the opportunity to say, what's the greatest verse in the Bible, Jesus? He said, Leviticus 19.18. He said, Leviticus, can you imagine? So look at Leviticus, part of the law. There's all kinds of laws that Moses is laying out uh, for God's people. Leviticus 19, look at verse 15. Here's one of the laws. You shall not do injustice in judgment. Get this. You shall not be partial. Partiality is a sin. It's part of the law of Moses. Don't be partial. Don't show favoritism. Don't give preferential treatment to anybody. You shall not... Uh, be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great. In other words, don't be partial to anybody. Treat everybody the same. That was in the law. The, the, the Christians in the book of James, they broke this law. And then there's a whole bunch of other laws. He keeps going on the laws. And next law I want you to look at, uh, look at verse 18, Leviticus 19. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. But you get this, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's another law. This wasn't a negative law. This was a positive one. The one we saw about don't show partiality. That was a negative law. Don't do this. This is a positive law here in verse 18. Do this. Love your neighbor. Who's your neighbor? Your neighbor is anybody that's around you and close to you. Jesus taught us that in the book of Luke. Love your neighbor. That's proactive. Supernatural love, the heart of God. So that's what he's going to get. Go back to James uh, chapter 2 here. Verse 8. It says, if, however, you are fulfilling 
And James is being fair here because, you know, he just blasted everybody. Boy, if you're showing partiality, that's wrong. But then in verse 80, he realizes that not everybody in the congregations is showing partiality. Some of them were hospitable and loving and treating uh, people and the poor correctly. So he wants to acknowledge and give credit to where credit is due. And he does that in verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, the royal law is to love. That's the royal law. Royal law just means the supreme law, the greatest law, the foremost law. In the words of Jesus in Matthew 22, where he said, the foremost law. Somebody asked him, what is the greatest law? What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, this is the greatest commandment. This is the foremost commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. What is the royal law, the greatest law, the supreme law, the all-binding law, the law above all law, the law that dictates and informs and defines all other laws in the Old Testament? It is love. That's the, that's the command. That's what's common denominator in those two commands. Love God, love your man. That's the royal law. So he says, if, however, you're fulfilling the royal law of love, if you're just loving everybody the same with the heart of Christ, you're not going to be partial. According to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself out of Leviticus 19 that Jesus reiterated in the Gospels. Then you are doing well. That is commendable. Praise God. Keep doing it. But James knows some of you aren't doing it. Some of you are partial. Verse 9, you're not showing love. And by the way, that's what partiality comes to. If you're showing partiality, favoritism, uh, prejudice, first and foremost, you are not loving that person. If you're partial towards the poor, you're not loving that poor person. If you're partial towards somebody because of their race, their ethnicity, you're not loving that person. That's what it comes down to. It's an issue of love. It's an attitude. It's a hard attitude. It's what you think. So that's why he goes on, uh, verse 9, with the rebuke. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin. Boom, there it is, man. It's just a, he defines it. What, he uses the law the ultimate, to define and expose what sin is. And that's what we need. That's what the law is for. We use the law to expose and define sin. The law came from God. The law reveals the mind and heart and character of God. So James is using the law, the Old Testament, to define and expose sin in their life. And he found one. Here's the searchlight of the Scriptures from the Old Testament, the law. And boom, he zeroes in on this sin of partiality that has now been exposed, uncovered, and needs to be dealt with. And he calls it two things in verse 9. He says, you are committing sin and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. He refers to it as two things. He called, first of all, he called it evil in verse 4. It was e- partiality showing favoritism towards different groups of people. It is evil, according to verse 4. And according to verse uh, 9, it is sin and it is transgression. Those are two specific words. Sin is to fall short. To not do what God expects. That is the sin of omission. You fail to do what you're supposed to do. And the sin of omission in this situation is they failed to give proper treatment to the poor man who deserved it because of they should have been showing the heart of God. That's where they failed. That's sin. The other word for sin is also transgression. Not only did they fall short, they crossed the line. They went beyond a boundary. Well, what was, what was it where they crossed the line? Well, they crossed the line by treating the, the rich man better than he deserved. So there was a shortcoming and then there was a falling short. And we do the same thing. Sins of omission, sins of commission. Also, these Jewish Christians, you know, he's nailing them on a very specific issue. They think, well, we, you know, we don't murder. We don't commit adultery. And they want to marginalize and and minimize this sin of partiality, which is evil, it is heinous, it is wicked. And a practical point that we can take away from this is that God, what does God expect of us when it comes to Scripture, to biblical truth? Uh, It's very practical and very simple. God doesn't want uh, selective obedience, does He? Selective obedience. God doesn't, He's not interested in partial obedience. He doesn't want inconsistent obedience. You know, sometimes we do that. Pick and choose. Somebody confronts you on a sin and you say, well, at least I didn't do that. That's what we do. And that's exactly what they are doing or what their argument would be. He's trying to point out a sin and they're saying, well, at least I don't do that. We do that all the time, don't we? Parents have to deal with this with their kids. You did this. Don't do that. You did this. Well, at least I didn't do that. No, you are still, let's state on the topic, you are a lawbreaker. You are evil. You are sinful. You are a transgressor. You need to repent. Let's deal with this. Stay focused, parents. Hang in there. And that's what's going on here. You show partiality. You're evil. You're a transgressor. You need to deal with it. And here's the point. Verse 10. Here's the reality. Well, at least I didn't do that. Well, he, then he gives this imagery actually like 
that the law of God isn't a whole bunch of separated. It's not like 632 different unrelated laws. The law is actually it's one law because it's given by one law law giver. It's like a big plate of glass on a huge, massive plate glass window. And the transgressor has a hammer and he hits the window in one place down on the very bottom as hard as he can and he shatters the hole and the whole thing just shatters to pieces. Then you say, well, you broke the window. Well, no, I didn't. I just shattered the bottom corner. Yeah, you did, but it affected everything else. The whole thing shattered. It's one entity. It's one unit. That's what he's saying about the law. The law of God actually is like this beautiful necklace that is gold and has a hundred little different links that keep it together. And it's got the beautiful diamond on it. And all you've got to do is just break one link and the whole necklace falls apart and is worthless. That's what he's saying about the law. So don't be uh, living your life by selective obedience, making excuses. Same rebuke for me. I can't do that. Inconsistent obedience, partial obedience. That's just as offensive to God. And by the way, he's also rebuking them for being legalists. Because they're not living by the law of love. They're living by the letter of the law. That is a legalist. And you can't be a Christian and be a legalist. It's impossible because the standard is too high. We have that in Christianity. Sometimes it's called perfectionism. I had a friend who was a pastor about 25 years ago, and he was going to write a book on perfectionism. And I said, well, why are you doing that? He said, because I'm a perfectionist. I didn't know what that meant at the time. I need to write a book on being a perfectionist. Do you know what a perfectionist really is? It's a Christian legalist. That's what it is. Because you give so much attention to the the law and not to love. And the reason you're a legalist is you can't possibly fulfill all the laws. You're a finite sinner. I'm a finite sinner. We've got to put our focus in the right place. It's not on the legalities and all these offenses. That happens. People come and complain about other people and they point out their sins. Then you're sitting there thinking, wow, yeah, he he or she did that. But I've seen you do 17 other things that break the law. That's exactly what he's talking about here. If you break it in one place, you've broken the whole thing. Uh, verse 11 is, For he, God said, do not commit adultery. also said, do not commit a, uh, murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the entire law because you have offended the same lawgiver that is God. Don't be a, legal, a legalist, but live by love. Love fulfills the law. I do want us to look at, uh, go to Matthew 22. No, actually, go to Matthew 19 first. Very interesting. Uh, in Matthew 19, someone's inquiring, asking Jesus questions. Uh, verse, Matthew 19, verse 16 says, Behold, one came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may attain an eternal life? See, this guy had the wrong view. He thought that getting salvation, eternal life, and forgiveness of sin was by doing good works. And Jesus knew this guy wasn't, couldn't save himself because he was a sinner to the core. Verse 17, and Jesus said to him, Why are you asking me about what's good? There's only one that is good, that's God. If you wish, if you wish to enter in eternal life, then keep the commandments. What Jesus meant there, if you wish to enter in eternal life, then keep all of the commandments and keep them perfectly forever. Because then you would be perfect and then you'd be God. And Jesus knew that was an impossible standard. So, and Jesus knew that the law was given to expose sin, to show a sinner his need for sin. That's why God gave the law. That's what you use the law for. It's for immature people. It's for sinners. That's the law. First Timothy 1.9 says that the law is for unrighteous people, not righteous people. Verse 18, this guy is confused. He said to Jesus, well, which laws should I obey and keep? And Jesus said, well, I'll just give you a few. So this is interesting. And look at verse 18. He lists five of the Ten Commandments. I mean, those are the biggies. Don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Verse 19, honor your parents. That's five of the Ten Commandments. Then it's just, I think it's amazing or interesting and intriguing that Jesus, the last one He gives is not one of the Ten Commandments. In verse 19. Five of the Ten Commandments, man, those are the biggies. Everybody knows them. They're on everybody's wall. And then He concludes with this. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is one of the laws. That's the law of love. Wow! Why did Jesus mention that after a String of five of the Ten Commandments because Jesus knew and He reiterates this later in Matthew 22 where He says, love fulfills the law. Love fulfills the law. You know what that means? That if you just loved somebody all the time, that's why there shouldn't be laws in marriage. When you're married and if you truly love that person, if you're truly one, 
in an idealistic world, in a perfect world, between husband and wife, you, you shouldn't need any laws or, or rules to manage your behavior because you should totally love each other, right? You're totally selfless. And if you totally love each other, then you're not going to commit adultery. You're not going to lie to your spouse. You're not going to steal from your spouse. You're not going to hurt your spouse. You're not going to do those things if you truly love them consistently 100% all the time. And if you loved 100% all the time, that's the law of love, then you wouldn't need rules, right? That's what Jesus is saying. If you loved God perfectly, we wouldn't need the first four Ten Commandments. If you loved God perfectly, you wouldn't worship false idols. You wouldn't take His name in vain. You wouldn't blaspheme or you wouldn't uh, misuse uh, the holy day. You wouldn't have any other gods before Him if you just loved God perfectly all the time. If we loved God perfectly, if we loved our fellow man perfectly all the time, we wouldn't need the last six commandments. Because if you loved your parents all the time, uh, we wouldn't need the law that says honor your parents. Otherwise, you get the death penalty. If we loved our neighbor all the time, or people around us, we wouldn't steal, we wouldn't lie, we wouldn't covet, we wouldn't uh, give false testimony, all that other stuff. So that's why he said love fulfills the law. So as a Christian, as a mature, spirit-filled Christian, every single one of us needs to aspire to live by the law of love and not legalism. Not legalism. So go back to uh, James chapter 2. So don't be partial. Live by the royal law, which which is the law of love and fulfills the law. Don't be a legalist, a Christian legalist. And then the practical appeal is at the end there in verses 12 and 13. And as a result, verse 3, the biblical result, believers should live by grace and not the gavel. The gavel of a judge, of a legalist, of always pointing out everybody's faults, of meeting out justice as soon as you can, showing no grace, showing no mercy. Pointing out all the imperatives in Scripture that the other Christian is violating and all the time. He's saying, don't live like that. That's not the law of love if you're living that way. That's not what's motivating you and driving you as a Christian. You can't be living like Judge Judy all the time. We need to live by grace. We got saved by grace. We should live by grace. Right? Here's a good exercise. If you ever, if you have forgiveness in your heart towards a fellow person or I mean, it can be an unbeliever or a believer. But if you have bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart towards a fellow believer, and you're a Christian, then just simply ask the question, so is this sin that they have against me that I'm not forgiving them for, is that a greater sin than anything I've sinned against Jesus? Well, the answer obviously is not. And yet I'm a Christian and God, Jesus has forgiven me of all of my sins, which are way more than the pity a pathetic little sin that that person has sinned against me. And yet, God has chosen to forgive me in Christ because of the work of Christ is death and resurrection. And that's why Colossians 3 says, then you need to do the same thing. Forgive each other as Christ has forgiven you, Christian. How has He forgiven you? Totally, completely, eternally in Christ. Right? So we should have very short accounts with everybody, especially fellow believers. That's the heart of Christ. That's true love. That is mercy. That is forgiveness. That's really what he's getting at in verse 12 and 13. So let's look at his conclusion here. So now that you understand this, Christian, that you're not supposed to be partial, that violates the law of God, it violates the love of God, you're not acting with the heart of Christ. God has poured out His love and affection on the poor of this world anyway. It's the rich people who have been oppressing you anyway, chasing you out of town. Don't be partial, showing favoritism towards anybody. Treat everybody the same. That's what Paul said in Philippians 2 too. He said, treat everybody the same. And that means legitimately so. Every human being is made in the image of God. So speak and so act. Be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Live your life as though you, the way you're going to be judged. Judge other people the way you want God to judge you. I know how I, how I want God to judge me. I want God to judge me very graciously, very leniently, very mercifully. And He does because He executed Jesus Christ on the cross in my behalf. Graciously, with great mercy. Because I deserve death and eternity and hell as a sinner. But Jesus got punished for me so I don't have to go to hell. 
and all of my sins have been forgiven in Him. And now God is going to be very gracious and merciful to me as a judge. And that's what He's saying. Wow, if you've been judged that way, then judge other people the same way by the, the law of love. Are you a person characterized by supernatural Christ-like love towards other people? Or are you just now this cold, persnickety, unforgiving, short-tempered, critical, hypercritical Christian? It's your two options. Verse 13, for judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. That's unbelievers. God is going to be merciless to unbelievers. He is going to use the full extent of the law to condemn them for all eternity in eternal hell. But not so for the Christian. Uh, God has chosen to be forgiving to those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, His death on the cross, His resurrection, His beautiful gospel. God forgives them totally, instantly, 100% for all time and all eternity, secures them into His family, and as a result, God continues to be merciful to His children. And that triumphs over eternal judgment that we don't have to face. That's why Paul can say gloriously in Romans 8.1 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God has been merciful to us in Christ. We need to do likewise. So let me close with this. Romans 12. In case you're still wondering practically, well, what does mercy look like? Because I want to live as a merciful person. I want to be merciful towards other people. How does that manifest itself? Well, let's look at Romans chapter 12 together in closing. Here's the attitude, the heart, the actions, and the manifestation of a Spirit-filled Christian who manifests mercy towards others in an ongoing basis in their life. Is this you? Or is it at least a desire you have? Well, it should be the heart of every Christian. It starts at uh, Romans 12, verse 14 and following. Bless those who persecute you. Wow. starts out with a hard one. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. By the way, these are all impossible on a human level. It has to come from God, His help, His Spirit. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. That's being a merciful person. Sympathetic, compassionate. 16, be of the same mind towards one another. There it is. Treat everybody the same. Don't be a partial person showing favoritism and prejudice or preferential. Do not be haughty in mind. Don't think of yourself more than you are. Don't be arrogant. But associate with the lowly. There it is. Associate with the lowly. Those that nobody else likes. Whether they're poor, they're despised, they stink, they're weird, they're ugly. They're made in the image of God. Associate with the, the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Be at peace with all people insofar as it depends upon you. Verse 19, never take your own revenge. Beloved, never but leave room for the wrath of God. That is the definition of mercy. When somebody deserves wrath, they deserve judgment and condemnation, and you restrain it, you hold it back, and you don't give them what they deserve. You don't give them wrath, you give them grace. That's the definition of mercy. But leave, the wrath, leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, says God, I will repay. Verse 20, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. That's merciful. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals upon his head. You give him an unbeknownst blessing. God will reward you as a result. And then finally in verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but rather overcome evil with good. Wow. That's a lot of good practical stuff. So my heart's desire is that for us as a congregation, GBF, we're not going to be partial. We're going to be welcoming. We're going to be hospitable. We're not going to be prejudiced or showing favoritism. We're going to rule our lives by the love of God and not legalistically. We're going to have a conscious recognition of how God has been merciful to us and saved us unworthy sinners. That's how we'll be motivated to live life day to day. So here's a couple of real quick questions. How are we doing as a church? How are you doing personally? Throw them out there. You don't need to answer them. Answer them in your own heart. Do you love everyone the same? Equally. Next question. Do you treat everyone the same? Next question. Are you prejudiced toward other people based on the following? Based on race, ethnicity, or color? If you are, that is sinful, evil transgression. Are you prejudiced towards people because of their gender? If you are, that is sinful. Are you prejudiced towards people because of their social status? 
the job they have or don't have, their occupation, their title, their education, their degrees, their rank, their income. If they show any favoritism whatsoever or partiality in any regard, it's sinful, it is evil, it is transgression. Are you partial towards anybody in terms of familiarity? Or you don't give attention to strangers because you don't know them? That's partiality. Do you show partiality based on looks or physical appearance? Do you show partiality based on personality? If you do, that's wrong, it's evil. And then as a result, as a dad, I can't be uh, partial with my kids. I've got four of them. I've got to like them all the same. Wow, how do I do that? They're all different. Well, I need to. As a teacher, and I am a teacher, I can't be partial with my students. I've got to treat all my students the same. Take supernatural ability. As a coach, I can't treat any of my players with partiality. I've got to treat them all the same. As a pastor, get this one. I can't treat any of the members with partiality. I can't have, did you know the elders of this church, five elders, we can't have favorites? So we don't do that at elders means, yeah, I really like this one or her, yeah, can't do that. It's partiality, it's wrong. So as a pastor, you've got to like, you've got to love all the members equally. Take supernatural help from God. And then finally, this applies to all of us. As a Christian, we cannot be partial with anyone. And with God's help, we'll live by the law of love. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank You for this day and the opportunity to worship with the saints, to worship You, God, through song. Thank You so much for Your Word that speaks so clearly to us. It's so relevant and practical. Thank You, Holy Spirit, for being our teacher. Help us to apply these principles to life, not on our own strength. God, help us to not be legalists. Help us to rule our lives by the law of love by mercy, by grace, by forgiveness, by patience, by the fruits of the Spirit as You enable us and empower us to do so. God, I pray that we do all of this in a way that pleases You so that You might be glorified and put on display for the whole world. We commit it all to You in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.